welcome to Asking Eve, the regular podcast brought to you by Emily and Lara, the mother-daughter duo behind Advancing Eve. Our podcast series will bring you a variety of conversations with girls and women who are just like us and you, making their way through life. We hope you enjoy. So hi everybody and thanks again for joining us on another Asking Eve podcast. Today it's just me, Emily. Uh, Lara is busy with her studies. I have been joined today by the amazing Dr Suzanne Doyle-Morris and we are going to talk about confidence and competence. Uh, so thank you very much, Suzanne, for joining me today. Uh, just as a little introduction, could you tell us how we came about recording this podcast today? Well, you got in touch with me because we had worked together on WES, that's Women's Enterprise Scotland, and you were aware of the book was out and it sounded like it resonated, but really, why don't you say how, what resonated with you for it? I mean, well, actually, there was there was so much, really. Uh, but the the kind of um, the takeaway that really stuck with me was, like many women of my age, so I'm 44, and you know, it could be that it's that it goes across the ages. In fact, I'm sure it does. I I struggle a lot with confidence and self confidence. But you know, I've got a good 25 plus years experience within my sector, and you talked about the importance and value of competence mm -hmm. and how you should really focus on that and take confidence from that. And as I was sitting downstairs in my family room, just had, having rushed in from my day at work and I was like, and it really just, it just pinged with me. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's what I need to focus on. I need to focus my own thinking on my competence and not my confidence. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was it for me. And I was just like, I've got to speak to this woman. I need to be able to record a podcast and share this message with as many people as we, as we can. So I suppose we should sort of quickly just see what the title of the, the book is. So it's the con job, getting ahead for competence in a world obsessed with confidence. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot in there. There is a lot in there. Um, I'm guessing that you spend a, a significant amount of time giving presentations and talks based around you about around your research. Um, what do you gain from these interactions? So I think what I gain is that sense, that validation, that this is far bigger than just something I suffered with, than you suffered with Emily, that maybe Laura may suffer with. It is so much bigger than that. So, so did, you, did you suffer, do you feel like you would suffer yourself with, with something like that, you know, crisis? Yeah. My goodness, I don't, know never I don't know anybody who doesn't, but more specifically, I would say in the work that I've done for mm -hmm. 25 years as well, working with senior, senior people, men and women, but particularly women, mm -hmm. even the women that you and I would completely, completely idolize as having arrived, the truth uh, they themselves will feel elements of imposter syndrome at various points. Mm -hmm. So for me, the point of writing the book was I really hate to see people overlooked because they don't necessarily have a confident bravado, yeah, yeah. but they're really good at their job because actually mm -hmm. those people in my experience tend to be women, but also as we'll talk about in the book, they tend to be ethnic minorities, they're yeah. introverts, they're people from cultures where 
talking about how great you are doesn't flow naturally um, to many Scots, in fact. So I think- Yes, absolutely. I would would agree with that, yes. (laughs) It's frowned upon. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So so in the work that I've done, you know, with so many companies that have global reach, I see that people historically were overlooked if they didn't portray confidence Mm -hmm. the way the senior guys did. And so yeah, in the book, yeah. I call those people status quo. That's the, those are the people who model what we all expect from confidence, that kind of driving force, that sense of my way or the highway. But actually, you know what? That kind of confidence is not really very useful or valuable and actually sinks organizations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a shame that, that um, the non-status quo people can sometimes look on with envy or, or, you know, or want and wish that they could emulate that kind of behavior. But really, it's it's not a positive trajectory at all, is it? Yeah. It isn't. And, and I think the other thing is it's they may want to emulate it. But in my experience, coaching women at a range of organizations, they don't really respect it. Mm-hmm. So realistically, they think, you know, I've had conversations with clients who say, you know what, I know that I've been selected for coaching or for high potential leadership. But when I look at the people ahead of me, the guys at the top, mm-hmm. and I see the way they behave, I think, you know what, if that's what you want from leadership, thanks, but no thanks. thanks. That is so interesting, actually, and and, um, I can relate to that. Uh, And I think part of the reason why I left um, an organisation to to set up on my own was I was looking and thinking, no, this just does not fit with me at all. Uh, and I'm going to remove myself from that environment. Um, so yeah, power to all of those, you know, irrespective of um, demographics who, who choose to do that, because then we have the opportunity to create something different, don't we? If we take we that do. that brave step, yeah. Completely. And um, so yeah, let's go back to learning a little bit more about you. Uh, so you're an American living in the UK. Um, so how long have you lived here? Give us a little bit of sense of whereabouts in the UK you are. So I am in Pitt and Wayne. <laughs> so on the East Coast in the, well, the East Nuke of Fife, but uh-huh. I've been in the UK over 24 years. Excellent. So I have decided that I like it, huh? You're staying You're staying <laughs> But um, you mentioned lots of other countries in the week as well. So um, how many other countries have you lived in? And what, what has experiencing those different cultures taught you? And, you know, how did you bring that into your studies and your learning? So I think that, so I have lived and worked in Ireland, Australia, the US, back where I was based, um, England, down south, (laughs) but realistically, the thing I learned, and I learned this when I was a teenager living in Australia, is that you actually learn a lot about your own culture, the most, I would say, when you're out of it. Yes, yes. So you're almost blind to it when you're there. It's wallpaper. And it's not until, yeah, I can see that. I would love that opportunity then. (laughs) Yeah. So there's this element of you see the best of it, but you also see the things, you you know, you don't, that you think your home culture is getting wrong. It's far easier to do that when you're, when you're away from it. So, so for me that, you know, that's really vital Mm -hmm. and it's probably not one of the things people sometimes say to me is, how can you write about a, a book about, you know, let's not value confidence. Isn't it one of the greatest exports of the U.S.? <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, that kind of whole 
cultural social construct yeah (laughs) what's really interesting about that actually it's just something that's come to, to my mind is um you can bring that kind of idea right down to a very minutiae level so i'm from the scottish borders uh the furthest I've gone to live and work is, is has been Edinburgh, which is an hour up the road. Didn't even stay there very long, came back down. Um, and I have worked with numerous women who are not from the Scottish borders who now work down here. And they talk about the level of sexism they find within the workplace in the Scottish borders. And I'm like, no, no, you know, that doesn't exist, you know. And, and they're like, yeah, but you don't, you can't see it because, you know, you're blind to it. It's wallpaper to you. It really does exist and it's, it's horrendous. It must be a lot more stealth than, than the kind of examples that we're all used to because honestly, I can't see it, but they can. So I suppose you can get that benefit. You don't have to go and live in Australia for a year to be able to see, you know, you can just experience it in a, in a much more local level. So yeah, that, that's something that's definitely going to have to be on the bucket list and I'm going to have to leave the borders at some stage. <laughs> really? But then you'll, then you'll like appreciate it that much more. Yes, yes. So I think I might pick the south of France as a place to go. <laughs> <laughs> and then come back. Research purposes only, right, Emily? Absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing else, no ulterior motive there at all. <laughs> no, but I do think it's, it's really, you know, I, I, um, I wouldn't want to change anything in my life because, you know, I'm very happy with my life. But I do think, gosh, I wonder if I could have, would have, should have spent time elsewhere. And my daughter, Lara, who is second year at Edinburgh Uni, has an opportunity to go to Copenhagen for her third year. And both myself and my husband are like, you've got to go, you've got to go. And I had not not long finished reading um, a Matthew Said book, now the name of which has escaped me for the minute, but he talks about diversity and true diversity and how it's not just a tick box exercise and how experiencing different cultures can really bring that in in a very organic way. So I'm like, you've got to go and, and experience it. So hopefully we will be visiting Lara in Copenhagen. <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, you have a PhD, which I'm very envious of. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, I think that for me, academia was never, so I'm definitely a true nerd. I'm sure there's quite a few people listening to podcasts who are big readers. That's always how I got into it. But realistically, it was never an end in itself. Um, I knew I wasn't going to stay in academia. For me, the uh-huh. purpose of getting the PhD was that I'd be able to be more valuable to the clients that I've got. And those are women who work in male dominated fields. That's what I did my PhD on. What makes women who work in very male dominated fields, what makes them stand out? Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in that conundrum. So that's what I, yeah, I did my research and I wrote books on it. You know, this is my third book, but realistically that was a route to something else. And that something else was to make a bigger dent yeah workplace workplace bias and do you think the phd gave you more value i mean do you think that um it it maybe didn't open more doors but did it open people's minds more to listening to what you had to say because you had this label um that you are at that certain level so oh my goodness you must know what you're talking about i think somewhat However, I would say, sometimes people ask me, should I get a PhD? Should I get an MBA? And I'll ask what's underneath that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's often because they feel they will get more promotion, they'll get more recognition. 
And what my response always is, do the guys who you work with, do they have PhDs? Do they have MBAs? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if the answer is no, don't assume PhD or the MBA or whatever the qualification is, is going to be your ticket. Yeah, definitely. If your peers or even more senior men don't need that ticket, then don't assume it's going to be the thing that gets you ahead. That gets you, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's such an undertaking that you'd have to be driven by a real personal mm-hmm. passion for the learning. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how long does it take? About what, six years or something, is it? Did it take or not quite mm-hmm. as long? I did mine at Cambridge and I had to do an MPhil, which was a, a year and then an additional three years. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's not a lighthearted undertaking. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for me, you know, it was really because I just was fascinated by research and what did, you know, what were the stories? What was, what were the, what did evidence like I'm a total nerd. I want to know what the evidence tells us. Yeah. And you've read the book and you'll see there are several hundred citations. <laughs> so I like the, the research, but I also like story, right? Because that's what you actually remember, yeah. is story. Um, so if I can share in the book, you know, the stories of nearly 40 leaders from around the world mm-hmm. and their observations about why competence is so much more valuable than just having a confident facade and why organizations would be doing a far better job if they actually rewarded competence Mm -hmm. over confidence which I don't think they do enough now then that's that's the key for me yeah um I mean I discussed the book this morning with a couple of colleagues and I and I you know I explained the story about how we came to have this conversation and how I had come back to you and said I'd love to chat to you but I absolutely have to go away and thoroughly digest the book what I did like about it was there is that that very objective backing up of the anecdotal I think that that's really important and actually already I've had a conversation with a a high level director within an organization trying to talk around how we can do more to kind of support this um, competence uh, appreciation and development and acknowledgement and you know his comeback was well you know those are just anecdotes that you're giving me and then I was able to come right back in and go well actually it's not it's very you know heavily based around research I I think that it's really really important Um, I think you're absolutely right in how we can kind of reframe organizational thinking around competence and not confidence do you think that organizations as entities struggle with that concept and and how do they actually bring that through in their recruitment and their development you know do you think they don't know how and that's why it's maybe not as evident as we would like it to be I think it's a challenge uh certainly because I think too frequently we we equalize we equate confidence mm-hmm. equals competence. So what we assume is if somebody comes in recruitment, let's say someone comes to that job and says, yeah, I can do this job. And they say it glibly, they can tell you, you know, a few good stories, but they don't necessarily have the evidence to back it up. We're probably going to give them the benefit of the doubt, particularly if they are status quo. Yeah. So status quo, as you'll remember in the book, refers to the characteristics that many of our leaders, most of our leaders statistically, Uh 
have that is being heterosexual, that's being male, that's being white, that's being from socioeconomic classes that have a bit more, that's mm-hmm. native English speakers in the company mm-hmm. we live. I mean, one of the funniest stories uh, that one of the women, she was a French woman and she was working in Germany. And she told me a funny story about how she also had English, um, she had English colleagues. And she said, for the first several years, I used to think they were the smartest people in this company. I mean, God, they just, they had a great turn of phrase. They always knew what to say. And actually after a while, I just noticed they're as good as anyone else, but, but not, you know, but the thing is they are just speaking their native tongue whereas yeah. I'm having to translate twice mm-hmm. in my head before I even get it to the English version. Yes. So they're coming up quick and glib in those meetings where she's translating and realistically, her ideas are no worse. Um, yeah, and in yeah. many cases, they were probably better. But realistically, she didn't get in there as quickly. Yeah, yeah. And that is exhausting, that kind of whole um, translation of language thing, isn't it? And having to perform, I cannot imagine having to perform yeah. in that kind of environment whilst you're having to do all that internalization in your head. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Oh, gosh, what a shame. I mean, that, that is a real challenge then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so as I've said already, I mean, really the book had several aha moments for me. I mean, the whole concept of status quo, I was like, oh my God, that's that's right, that exists. Mm-hmm. And then the, the kind of idea of confidence being a bit of a social construct. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, where else would it come from? Mm-hmm. And then the, the different um, aspects of it, you know, whether it's to do with sex or race or age or socioeconomic grouping, you know, I was like, really as I was reading I was like oh my god that's me that's me that's me that's me um what about yourself though when you were researching the book did you discover anything that was an aha moment for you so I think what I really liked again uh I'm you know kind of throwing it out there that I'm a nerd I'm really interested in words and I was interested that the first writings where confidence was used in the English language were you know from the 16th century but what they meant was trust. Mm -hmm. Do I have confidence in this person? So this is the thing. Confidence was never something you had yourself. It was only something other people could give to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, when most people are talking about having more confidence or just confidence, they're referring to that kind of superficial veneer of what they'd like to portray to the world. In fact, Emily, I'm quite certain if you met somebody who said, yeah, you know what? I want to be more confident. You wouldn't necessarily suggest them be more trustworthy, but if they said, I want to, I want to appear more trustworthy, you'd probably think, Ooh, that sounds a bit sketchy. (laughs) I know. Why would I I not trust you? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So that was interesting to me, but for me, I think the, the research that really was interesting to me was the the fact that there is a converse relationship between competence and confidence, mm-hmm. which is the more your competence goes up, the more you're able to see that actually there's quite a lot that I don't know still about this topic. There's other ways to look at it. There's things we don't know. There's new questions that come out of it. And actually the people who are the most confident are the least competent. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
and this was painful and you know I am sure that there will be many people listening protect particularly if you're a professional woman in an organization you will identify so many people that you work with that are so confident but actually are just not that good at what they do <laughs> and you're like how do they keep climbing up that ladder <laughs> So it's it's quite worrisome. I mean, yeah. I think that's that's interesting to me because we equate the two as if they go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. But they don't. And realistically, the more and, and I think you know we're in a time of COVID, and I think what's interesting is this is where the medical uh, medical establishments they don't come across saying yes, we're going to have it all fixed by X date. And months ago, they didn't know when a vaccine would come, how long it would take because they are not salespeople, yeah. they are trained clinicians and scientists and researchers, and they know how complex yes, yes. these are. So- Their frame of reference is completely different, isn't it? Right, so I think that, you know, this is what we see in the workplace, but I think we also see it in politics. You oh know? gosh, absolutely. Yeah. Right, so, so you'll see people, uh, you know, and I, won't name names given where I'm coming from in the US, but we have had, you know, we've just gotten rid of somebody whose main quality was overconfidence, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we're not better off for it. That's for darn sure. No, no, I know. <laughs> I know. I don't feel like I'm, I'm um, in the right place at all to be able to pass any comment on that one. But I think, yeah, as an outsider looking in, yeah, they're yeah. all like, what is going on there? You know? But we um, see this with lots of your, we see this with other, you know, leaders. And yes, yes. Remember I talk about that in the book. We as talk well. about that in the book as well. Yeah, actually, yeah. And I think it's interesting to read that in the book because you see people in a different light. And when you reference well-known people and you can identify behaviours and journeys, then that kind of opens your eyes to kind of looking at people within your own network and your own um, environment. And you're like, okay, right, yeah, I can see that. And I think then that um, ultimately that empowers us to be able to manage relationships differently, um, potentially more to our own benefit as well. You know, certainly if I had read this book seven years ago, I'm sure I would have made different decisions because I would have been much more switched on to things both for myself and within others with it you know who I was working with um so yeah if I can just say to everybody listening you should absolutely go and buy the book <laughs> and that's a plug by me so that's okay and <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so um how do you think we can better support women to become more self-aware of our competence um because I you know short of kind of photocopying you and putting you putting you in front of every girl up to you know whatever age it's just something that I, I feel passionately that we should be doing more of and this kind of second to that is that um counter to that is that self-limiting belief you know how, how do we positively help with all of that do you have any thoughts on that so I have a couple but the thing I would encourage people to think about first is context so context is has this always been an issue? So for you as an individual, you may feel it has been, but let's look at lack of confidence or specifically imposter syndrome as a relatively new artifact. So I'm not saying people haven't felt it through history, but what's interesting, I bet you didn't know this. I certainly didn't know this. Imposter syndrome didn't even exist in our language until 1978. And what's interesting about that 
is that's when women were entering workplaces in mm. vast numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And had to be thinking of a way to describe this feeling of being the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like they didn't quite fit in and weren't quite good enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting, so going back to the point you made at the very beginning, this is a social construct that if you go and work in a place where you're not necessarily, that wasn't designed for you ever, <laughs> And you may not be as completely welcome or to raise up as high as other people will. This is imposter syndrome is one of the, the elements that can come out of that. I think on a more practical level, though, the thing I'd encourage people to do is listen to feedback. So you'll know from the book that I'm a big fan of feedback. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to be really clear about is listen to the themes of your feedback. Okay. It's different because what I want to be really clear about is that women can often be judged very harshly, but there's some interesting research that shows the people who are harshest in giving feedback on them are men with whom they compete. So that is their peers, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not their direct reports and not even the people that manage them who see them very favorably. But but it's amazing how frequently women can be downgraded by the guys who will see them in direct competition. If you have five people writing your, you know, 360 feedback um, and there's an outlier and one says some unfavorable things, but the other four are really good, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. listen to the four. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> get hung up because I'm sure, Emily, you know, you and I are probably not the only ones on listening today who have been really anxious about that one piece of construction. That, that little, yes, yes. <laughs> And actually, I was going to say when you talk when you talk about themes, again, it was like a oh moment for me because I like I'm sure many people like you just said will get really hung up on the tiny little detail that one little word or phrase that really kind of oh hits you there. But actually, if there are kind of overarching themes that that are coming from different people, we should be more focused on that. I I would struggle with that if I wasn't really aware of it, you know. So I think it, you know, brilliant tip really for when you're looking at that is kind of try and look above, take one step back from it and look above and, and see what, what's actually being said. Yeah, take the macro view. Yes, I remember yes. I was doing a piece of work for Scottish Enterprise a few years ago. And as part of that, that workshop we were running, we asked the individuals uh, to get 360 feedback from their, uh, from, from their teams. And what was so remarkable was that all of the women came back and they said, I didn't know that people thought I was so good. Like I, I just live in fear that I'm always doing things wrong. Yeah. And what we challenged them with what could be possible if you believed you were as good as those people think you are. And it was yeah, oh, revolution. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that, and that's quite sad, isn't it? Did, did you feel, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you'd be like, okay, we've got something to work with here. This is great. But the other flip side of that is, oh no, you know, how many women are feeling like this all of the time? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. It's, it's not easy always, is it? Um, okay, so I'll just ask you one other question and then we'll have a little break. Um, you talk about um, the show, you know, you can show. So competence has evidence, you know, uh, mm. and you can show that. Um, and then, so I, as I was reading that, I was like, yeah, well, if I think about myself, how far I've come and what I've achieved, my goodness, I've got a lot of show. 
you know, in a positive way. Um, I'm sure I've probably got a lot of show in a negative way as well, but that's another conversation. <laughs> um, how can we, but I wouldn't know how to leverage that really, you know? Um, so how can we help women to kind of, A, first of all, identify it and catalogue it, I suppose, and then be able to use it to their advantage to kind of demonstrate, well, do you know what? I can not only talk the talk, but I can walk the walk. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's two pieces that I would give you there. The first is one is going back to the feedback and even going back and doing what I would consider kind of almost retroactive feedback and talking to past bosses, past sponsors, past people who have given you a leg up in some way or added you to a project and ask them, hey, it's been a while since I saw you, but can I ask, why exactly did you bring me in on that project? or give me that promotion, or give me that responsibility. And the feedback you'll get from them is often really enlightening. And it usually has to do with your competence. Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Because they'll be like, well, I knew you would deliver, or I knew Mm -hmm. you'd get on with everyone, or whatever it is. It's a skill set, because people are not going to take a risk on you unless they know you can (laughs) turn up with the goods. (laughs) So go back and remember that. And I think the second thing I'd say is focus on, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of using the word when. So if you're trying to own that competence in meetings, highlight that you've done this thing before or why you've come to an opinion. So when I was reading this article, when I was writing this for a client when I was presenting on this, when I was talking to the big boss about this topic, give people a sense of your context. Mm-hmm. Not that you're coming up with you know, outlandish ideas from the top of your head, but it's yeah. based in something. Gosh, I mean, when and why, they're so simple, aren't they? When you, say, when you, when you strip it back down. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just a case of, well, remember, I suppose, as a start. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just as important as, you know, your personal and professional development in other ways, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time trying to make ourselves well-rounded, but mm-hmm. kind of taking that time to kind of go back for the, the kind of why and the when, it's just mm-hmm. as important in that journey, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Alrighty, so uh, we're just going to have a, a very short break um, at the moment, and we will be back with you shortly. Fantastic. back uh, just to remind everyone I am with the amazing Dr Suzanne Doyle Morris today and we are talking about confidence and competence uh, so again I know I'm saying this so many times but I just absolutely loved your book um, not only for myself but as the mother of two teenage children so I think I've already mentioned my daughter who is 19 I also have a son who is 16 and I want to touch now on the concept, this construct we've talked about already, confidence. I mean, it absolutely does seem like the holy grail in the 21st century, with young adults seeming to ooze it. And, you know, I, I look on in awe of them and, and think, you know, the way, the way they walk, the way they talk, the, you know, the, the way they carry themselves. And I just think, God, when I was that age, I would, you know, I would have been a little mouse, you know? Um, how real do you think that is, this, this kind of confidence that our young adults seem to have? So I think it's fairly, if you scratched it, it would fall. And the reason I say that is because young people haven't had the knocks 
that we all need to have to build what I would call robust confidence. That's the confidence that means you're going to keep getting up going again. So I think that when I say it's superficial, Mm -hmm. it's often based on that which is around social media or the way the world, the person they want to portray to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But I do not think that that is at all related to how they really are necessarily feeling. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's a real, um, you know, a, a real shame because it's far better to be a little less, um, you know, have a little less bravado. Yeah, yeah. And be, but be, you know, able to rely on yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the way that people, you know, we can't. I, I just, I really, I did a, I did an event a few weeks ago for, um, you know, a cross party group at Holyrood. And what was so interesting is we did talk about age related to confidence. And the thing that was interesting is that in research, it shows that that young people are actually very concerned about their confidence. But I think part of that is because they're they're comparing themselves. And and when I say they are very, they're more than any other age group. And I think part of that is down to the fact that they compare themselves to, as you literally just said, the kind of very, ooh, they seem to ooze it. They're comparing themselves to their peers Mm -hmm. and coming up short. But the good news for them is that research shows consistently that people who maybe were not the most popular in secondary school or when they were fairly young, but they had a good steady group of friends, small but steady, (laughs) not the sexiest term is it, but (laughs) steady group of friends. Gonna win the race. in the race and what's interesting is research shows that people who are in their mid-20s had that kind of what I would call peak years earlier of that uber confidence you were talking about they are hugely dissatisfied with how life has turned out yeah yeah so yeah they had all of this um expectation that that kind of scenario was just going to be a continuation all through their life and they were just Mm going to these through it yeah I mean again when I read you know as a mother when I was reading this it did make me think goodness you know where are my children at on this scale you know we we have talked as parents often about um resilience it's got to be the kind of one thing that we wanted to make sure that our kids were really resilient but the flip side to that is as parents you want to give your children the most perfect rose tinted specs childhood which ultimately doesn't really present or you try not to let it present them with knocks don't you mm-hmm. uh, and then you don't know looking back does that make your children more resilient or or not um but I think what what really is sad not just you know for me as a parent but for for everyone as parents of, of young people is if if this means that they're really not happy you know and I think that you touch on that as well and mm-hmm. and where do we go I mean what is going to be the impact of, of that in, in years to come? Um, and I think that's a, a huge question, Emily, because um, frankly, they need that resilience that mm-hmm. knocks will give them. The fact that not everybody likes every comment or whatever it is or every po- photo that they show. I think that's important because that resilience is going to be so much more, and I hate to say it, but I predict more valuable to them than almost certainly this gener- you know the generations you and I are in because these people are entering you know the highest cost of living the hugely competitive job markets housing costs are crazy compared oh, absolutely to- so there's a lot going on that's going to be very difficult for them and if they thought everything was going to be rose tinted 
and that the world, and the, the reason I talk about this in the book as well is because it's linked to narcissism. And that worries me because actually we can't have narcissists entering the job market. <laughs> Particularly yes. since the big, the big problems that we've got in society going forward, like climate change and rising inequalities, mm -hmm. those are issues which are only going to be solved collaboratively. Yes, absolutely. Yes. But you know what? Narcissists aren't known for being collaborative or compromised. <laughs> So, so we really got to make sure that they have this, you know, this in them. Yeah, and, and you talk about the kind of um, repositioning of nar almost of narcissism in the book as well. And I, and I was like, oh, oh my goodness, this is horrendous. Um, I mean, what, what do we do there? You know, how can we help with that situation? So I think one, one thing that's really interesting to me about narcissism is that um, it's, you know, it, it's from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is around the way people are diagnosed with psychiatric illnesses. And what's interesting to me is that in the US, which is where the DSM was originally um, published, there's a real move to declassify narcissism as no longer a mental illness. And the reason they are doing that is because, or they're thinking about doing it, is because it's no longer rare enough. Oh, I mean, that's just <laughs> painful, painful to hear. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's like declassifying depression. Mm -hmm. If everybody has it, it's actually just the way we are, it's right? The norm, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And the DSM was always built for things that were statistically rare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you could, would you go back and be 21, 22 right now in 2021? So no, I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> is my yeah. answer. And you know, the thing is, I think it's really interesting is when I talk to older women, they too do not necessarily want to go back. Not because things are tougher now, but because yeah. I think you get a lot of value when you have some knocks. And uh -huh. you know that things are tough because it makes you appreciate the things that are good when they eventually happen as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Shirley MacLaine's uh, said this, you know, a, a great quote, which was in your 20s, you worry about, you know, what everybody's saying about you. In your 40s, you stop worrying about what people are saying about you. And in your 60s, you realize they were never talking about you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh yeah, that, that's just, that's brilliant. Oh, well, so I'm in my 40s, so I'm, I'm about right then, I think. <laughs> uh, great. So um, if this is the situation that our, that our young people are facing right now, how can we help, you know, help them understand and, and harness that kind of whole um, real robust confidence is really a byproduct of knowledge and competence. Mm. And that just takes time and knocks and learning and you know all of those other things that 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 we, that we know about. How can we help them to understand that? I think that we have to help them see that self-doubt can actually be a gift. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That it's what keeps you listening, not just to feedback, but to other points of view. Going back to that right. place we're talking about you know, all the research you're going to do when you're in the south of France, you'll be hearing lots of other points. <laughs> listening to other points of view, it keeps you humble, it keeps you listening to feedback and asking for feedback and seeing the value of feedback. Mm -hmm. And it keeps you improving. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you start having self-doubt, well, there's nothing. So, yeah, there's the, yeah, absolutely. Like, where's the drive and the catalyst? Yeah. yeah. So that that kind of and you, I was just going to come on to self-doubt actually because it sounds like it's it's almost contradictory. You know, competence, confidence needs self-doubt and you talk about self-doubt being a gift in, in the book um but I can actually see yeah I think that a lot of what I've certainly achieved I think has been driven by a degree of self-doubt and I've used that almost as my energy mm-hmm. and I think that that's maybe been a much more positive approach than thinking that self that, that the doubt has come from somebody external to me mm-hmm. um you know I, I think that you know definitely things that I've gone up gone on to achieve have been influenced by other people but I've certainly managed to leverage that doubt well can I can I well I'm just going to go and darn well see if I can um so yeah if we can just encourage younger people and I suppose give you know relatable relevant examples of how you can do that that would maybe help them see that that's not something to be afraid of you know just when you're talking with kids I think one of the things to do to highlight to them is pick something, maybe it's a skill that you think they've got and ask them to reverse time travel. When were they not so good at that thing? Um, yes. And what did they do? To Love get, that. How did they get- Reverse time travel. They probably put more time into it. <laughs> they probably yeah. ran up on a bit. You know, they probably played with other yeah. kids. They did, other, they did something that contributed to them getting more competent. <laughs> <laughs> So they just kept getting better, but you don't, you're not, nobody's born competent at something or, or let alone excelling at something. That's something, you know, many of us are born being able to do a couple good things, maybe if we're lucky, but if you want to be great, you got to put in the time. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a couple of uh, things that come to mind here. Uh, I often hear people say, you know, the beginning is always the hardest. And actually it is, isn't it? I mean, sometimes it's painful when you're starting out on that journey. But another one that I like uh, more is um, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. I mean, it's just so true. And I think it's often used in a sporting context, but actually it's equally as applicable in any kind of context, isn't it? You've got, you've got to put the work in, don't you? You can't just kind of wake up and be like, well, you know, I want to um, make a difference in the world. So, and this is what I'm going to do without there being something behind there, some substance behind it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay, so uh, um, just coming towards the end of our chat now. So um, you, you referenced Scotland a lot in the book, which I have to say I absolutely loved because I've, it, for me, it was so unusual to kind of hear so many Scottish references and you know, a couple of people I've, I, I know or, or I've heard of but I wouldn't necessarily have heard their views on this subject in this in this way, but it made it so relatable, which which was great. Um, so I'm assuming that that's because you're you're kind of based here and your primary network is is majority here. Um, so as a proud Scot, um, do you think that being Scottish is a non-status quo group? <laughs> you know, the way you make it sound sounds like they need to be protected. They're a protected group. <laughs> So what I would love, I love about the Scots that I feel is actually really, um, really compliments what I talk about is that Scots are known for being plain talking and people who are just down to earth, don't have a lot of hubris, won't put up with a lot of, you know, a lot of anything. So I think what's interesting is I wouldn't say that they, I would never call them non-status quo because actually being non-status quo is about 
many aspects of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. That is your socioeconomic background. That is your race. That is, you know, even your extroversion versus introversion and your gender. So Scots as a group, there's, you know, there's a lot we have in common, but there's a lot of difference even within us. Within that, yeah. If you think about, so for me, when, when I first moved to Scotland, what I noticed was actually people on the West Coast of Scotland were often the most humble. And certainly the people who are, you know, you didn't want to, you know, talk about, talk up at yourself, definitely. And that was something that was portrayed to me very much of the people I, I met from there. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something to that. If we turn that on its head, I think there's something that the world values about it. Mm-hmm. And you will know, as well as I do, that Scottish is like the third most trusted accent across the UK uh-huh. because and who do you trust you trust people who are competent excellent yay so we've got it nailed we're already halfway there <laughs> exactly. I mean I think that's a really I think that's interesting is that when you're buying a financial service or whatever you're buying you mm-hmm. want to go with somebody who knows what they're doing which is why call centers in Scotland are very popular Ah. got you know the answers for that so I I think you know I I think it really depends on the context I think that a Scot who is down in London maybe more so maybe more um non-status quo but realistically we have our share of rich white men here too in Scotland (laughs) absolutely (laughs) great perfect okay so if you could speak to your 10 year old self what would you tell a young Suzanne I would tell her to continue to be, well, two things. One is a bit more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? More grounding. And that is that keep on being, (laughs) what I call in the book, depressively realistic. (laughs) (laughs) So what I mean by that is be just a bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, yeah, realistic. Don't think the world revolves around you because it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the truth is you'll get further if you recognize that early on. So, and and I want to point out that there's research with this that shows consistently that people who have a more depressively realistic outlook on life, they actually are much better off for the rest of their life than people who are, what the researchers call, you know, unrealistically optimistic. The funny thing is we don't call anybody unrealistically optimistic. What we instead call them is confident. <laughs> and there we go. We've come full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would definitely, I mean, I think it's all there. So mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it's really, you know, Voltaire, this is not a new idea, but it's one that we really need to, the workplace has to give more credence to. I mean, it goes back, Voltaire said, you know, doubt is uncomfortable. <laughs> Certainly you and I know it is, but certainty is absurdity. Wow, I love that. Yes. So there's something that, and I guess the other thing I'd tell my 10 year old self is you will eventually get that dog you want. you're in your 40s but you'll get a dog someday (laughs) oh yeah that would make her very happy I'm sure she would be content to wait as long as she knew it was going to come (laughs) excellent perfect so lastly is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today I think just you know keep up with the you know being I'm not going to say living your best life or anything else that feels like it should be on Instagram but what I'm going to say is 
keep making sure that you're getting feedback from people, you are acting on that feedback, because actually, as you'll remember, that's part of the way I define the new confidence. For me, I want us to rebrand it and talk about self-awareness, mm -hmm. the courage of your convictions, and going against the grain. Because frankly, that's what a lot of non-status quo people do every day. Yeah. But we don't necessarily call them confident. We call them brave or difficult or whatever. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that does a disservice to them when actually they're being confident. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's great. Absolute perils of wisdom to, to end there. So uh, again, thank you so much. If I could just, uh, again, tell everyone the book is such a good read. I mean, it's not a light read at all, but uh, you will gain so much from it. So it's the con job, getting ahead for competence in a world obsessed with confidence uh, by Dr. Suzanne Doyle Morris, PhD. Uh, for anybody listening, I have a copy and I would be more than happy to kind of um, circulate the book. And as part of Advanced Neve, we have a book club. So we would welcome any reviews of the book as well, actually. Um, so again, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, I am sure that we will bump into each other, hopefully face to face, if not virtually uh, within our networks uh, sometime soon again. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Emily, for having me.